Good morning again. Welcome to Potomac Hills Presbyterian Church. Hopefully at this point you'll have woken up, shaken off the lack of sleep, maybe had some coffee. Hopefully. We can hope, right? There are many new faces uh, that I see as I look out upon uh, all of you. It's great to have you with us. Welcome. Um, Please don't run out of the service if both you're new or old uh, in here at the church. Uh, We'd love the chance to meet and greet uh, you and have some time to fellowship with you. Um, If you aren't new, uh, please do look around, uh, see folks that you haven't seen before. Uh, Please welcome them uh, and be intentional about that. Uh, As we turn our attention to the Word of God, please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Job. We've got a lot of ground to cover this morning. If you read uh, the weekly thought, you'll know that we have seven chapters before us, and there's quite a lot to say. And in the interest of time, I will be speaking very quickly. So please buckle up, uh, get ready. Uh, We have a lot to say this morning. Hopefully you have read it. Uh, And because we are covering it so quickly, only four months in a 42-chapter book, um, I won't actually be reading the entirety of our passage this morning. We would be here all day. Um, So I'll be hitting highlights and summarizing a lot, um, and so it's probably prudent that we pray before we hop on in. So let's pray. Father God, we thank you uh, for these chapters, these chapters that show us the roller coaster of emotions, the highs and lows of despair, um, of grieving, of lamenting. And Lord, as we look at uh, these friends that are not super helpful and we look at Job's response to them, Lord, we ask that you would show us your gospel, how, it, how these passages, these chapters point us to our need for your death, your resurrection, and our union with you. So Lord, be with us now, fill us with your presence, and show us Jesus, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So... Uh, We are getting to the bulk, uh, the meat of the book of Job at 42 chapters. The bulk of uh, those chapters are taken up by three cycles of discussions between uh, Job and his friends. And they aren't really discussions or dialogues. They sort of start as comfort, and then they morph to arguments and they pretty much end up with shouting <laughs> um, between Job and his three friends. And this morning, our chapters are uh, 11 to 17. They cover the last friend in the first cycle, which is Zophar. Job's response, the start of the second cycle with uh, Eliphaz's second speech, and then Job's response to Eliphaz. And around and around they go. And by this point, hopefully, we can see a pattern between the friends and Job. And really, the way that I sort of view the friends and Job is the, way, is the difference between uh, how I see Professor McGonagall and Professor Snape from Harry Potter. And uh, so you see in the friends' speeches in chapters 11 and 15, they view God the way that we view Professor McGonagall. Authoritative, strict, but very scrupulously fair. Over and over again, the friends are outraged by Job's persistence, persistent claims of innocence. God is fair and just, right? 
We know that God is fair and just, and so God punishes the wicked and blesses the righteous. And since God obviously has sent this calamity on you, you must be sinful. Your refusal to repent and insistence on righteousness are an affront to the justice and majesty of God. Who do you think you are, Job? How can you think that you know better than God Almighty? So let's listen to chapter 11, verses 4 to 12, and then chapter 15, verses 4, uh, 4 to 6 and 14 to 16. For, I say, for you say, my doctrine is pure, and I'm clean in God's eyes. But oh, that God would speak and open his lips to you, and that he would tell you the secrets of wisdom. For he is manifold in understanding. Know then that God exacts of you less than your guilt deserves. Can you find out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limit of the Almighty? It is higher than heaven. What can you do? Deeper than Sheol, what can you know? Its measure is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. If he passes through and imprisons and summons the court, who can turn him back? For he knows worthless men. When he sees iniquity, he will, not, will he not consider it? But the stupid man will get understanding when a wild donkey's colt is born a man. And then skipping to chapter 15. But you are doing away with the fear of God and hindering meditation before God. For your iniquity teaches your mouth, and you choose the tongue of the crafty. Your own mouth condemns you, and not I. Your own lips testify against you. Skipping down a little further to uh, verse 14. What is man that he can be pure? Or he who is born of a woman that he can be righteous? Behold, God puts no trust in his uh, holy ones, and the heavens are not pure in his sight. How much less is one who is abominable and corrupt, a man who drinks injustice like water? Well, first things first, when we read these passages from Job's friends, we can see that gone are the words of comfort and concern. The conversation has moved from comfort to rebuke. They think that, God, that Job has far too low a view of God and far too high a view of his own righteousness. They've moved from begging him to repent and be restored to the blessings that he had before to mocking him. Did you hear right at the end of uh, chapter 11 in uh, the passage that I read in verse 12? But the stupid man will get understanding when a wild donkey's colt is born a man. Oof. Interestingly, not only are the friends wrong about Job's perceived sin, he's named blameless by God himself back in chapter 2, remember, but they're also wrong about the motivation to repent. For them, the incentive to repent isn't the righteous status. It isn't being right with the Lord, but rather the blessings that come from being right with the Lord. And so this is Satan's challenge to God from chapters 1 and 2 all over again. And so we see that the challenge is really, in fact, not over, but moved again to Job's friends. The avenue is to just tempt Job, hey, be like what I expect you to be. Love God only to get the blessings of being right with him. He only loves you, God, and obeys you because of what you can give him. The system of so-called justice, 
where sin is punished and obedience is rewarded, is more in line, in fact, with Satan's worldview than with God's. That neat, clean, and fair system that fits so well with McGonagall's character just doesn't seem to work. Because that's, in fact, not what Job sees. Which brings us to the first of Job's issues, that it's not a McGonagall world, but a Snape one. While Job agrees that God is almighty and powerful, he disagrees that God manages this world with the kind of clean and tidy justice that his friends seem to espouse. Look with me at chapter 12, starting in verse 4. I am a laughingstock to my friends, I who called to God and he answered me, a just and blameless man am a laughingstock. In the thought of one who is at ease, there is contempt for misfortune. It is, ready for, it is ready for those whose feet slip. The tents of robbers are at peace, and those who provoke God are secure, who bring their God in their hands. And so Job says that even though he's blameless, he's derided as a fool. But he also points to the fact that the wicked seem to prosper. Idolaters seem to be secure. He's pointing to, the, to a problem that other biblical writers such as Asaph in the Psalms have struggled with. In Psalm 73, verses 3 through 5 and 12 to 14, Asaph writes this, For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they had no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. No, this isn't a McGonagall world where authorities play by the rules, where Sin is punished and righteousness is blessed. No, this is a snape world. To Job, God is an all-powerful, uh, an all-powerful God who holds all the authority, and yet God does not play fair. To God, to Job, God isn't a benevolent ruler who blesses the righteous. Rather, He's dangerous and a destroyer, and just does what He wants. If we look at verses 14 to 25 in chapter 12, I won't read it, but there's a stream of examples of how God has wisdom and might, counsel and understanding. But the outcome of that exercise of power is always negative. It never works out well. One when the Lord destroys, none can rebuild. When the Lord shuts up, no one can open. When the Lord dries up the waters, then no one can bring water. And then the floods overwhelm the land, and just everything goes haywire and sideways. Nothing works as it should. And yet, as with the character of Severus Snape, it's complicated for Job. Because while Job doesn't trust the Lord to do justice, just as we often don't trust Snape to do justice for Harry. His plan in chapter 13 is to take God to court. And we saw this last week in Dr. Dave's sermon, and here Job finally decides to cast caution to the winds and to take his own life into his hands and to call upon God to meet him in court that Job might be vindicated. 
But it doesn't really make sense, right? If Job really thinks that God is unjust, then why does he trust that in a courtroom setting, God would actually play fair and be just and vindicate him? Why, how does this supposed to work? Is God just or not? And I think that it's because deep down, Job's foundational commitments are to have faith in God. Chapters 12 to 14 really give us an authentic picture of a suffering, grieving, and lamenting man. And what happens when we are faced with suffering, with lamenting, and grieving? We cast about for solutions. And most of the time, those solutions don't really make sense, mostly because we're not thinking clearly because we're so wrapped up in our suffering. We're just casting about for something, anything to hold on to. Remember in chapter 3 when Job regrets the day of his birth? That's authentic, understandable, but it doesn't really give him what he wants, which is vindication, so it's not very helpful to him. What about railing against the seeming injustice of it all? Well, that's cathartic, but not really satisfying. And this idea of taking God to court, this so-called, this latest of Job's solutions, well, it's dangerous and risky and probably won't work because this is a human being trying to take the Almighty to court. As we read through these dialogues between Job and his friends, we're seeing a realistic picture of the roller coaster of emotions that people that are suffering experience. Chapters 12 and 13 sort of take us up the hill as Job works himself up against God. I'm going to take him to court and I'm going to win. And then chapter 14 put him, puts him right back in the dumps. And then Job works himself back up again in chapter 16 only to plunge back into helplessness in chapter 17. But I think that the key is that Job keeps coming back to God, despite asking God to leave him alone several times. Listen to chapter 13, verses 15 and 16, and then 20 to 24. Though he slay me, I will hope in him. Yet I will argue my ways to his face. This will be my salvation that the godless shall not come before him. Only grant two things from me. Uh, two, only grant me two things. Then I will not hide myself from your faith from your face. Withdraw your hand from me and let not dread of you terrify me. Then call and I will answer or let me speak and you reply to me. How many are my iniquities and my sins? Make me know my transgression and my sin. Why do you hide your face and count me as your enemy? You see, Job is in conflict here. He truly believes that God is just, but he can't square that justice with his experience because he's suffering blamelessly. That dissonance is wreaking havoc on his ability to process what's going on in his life and to understand his circumstances. He thought that he was forgiven his sins due to his sacrifices because he's done what he thought he needed to do. But God seems to be treating him as if he's unforgiven according to the systems of the system of works and clean black and white justice that he expects. In short, Job's first issue is that he, can't, he simply can't wrap his brain around the idea of a righteous suffering. He can't see, seem to see how suffering can be worthwhile or valuable or glorious. 
And as Job considers his plan to take God to court, he's confronted by the seeming futility of it all. Even if he wins, he's still going to die. Which brings us to Job's second issue. What's the point? Look with me at verses uh, 1 through 12 in chapter 14. Man who is born of a woman is few of days and full of trouble. He comes out like a flower and withers. He flees like a shadow and continues not. And do you open your eyes on, one, on such a one and bring me, ju- bring me to judgment with you? Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? There is not one. Since his days are determined, the number of his months is with you, and you have appointed uh, his limits that he cannot pass. Look away from him and leave him alone that he may enjoy like a hired hand his day. Do you hear the helplessness here? That man is finite and will die, and then what? It's better if God just leaves them alone because death always still comes. For there is hope for a tree if it be cut down that it will sprout again and that, it, that its shoots will not cease. Though its root grow old in the earth and its stump die in the soil, yet at the scent of water it will bud and put out branches like a young plant. But a man, a man dies and is laid low. Man breathes his last and where is he? As waters fail from a lake and a river wastes away and dries up, so a man lies down and rises not again. Till the heavens are no more, he will not awake or be roused out of his sleep. And so for Job, as he considers his legal solution, what's the point? Even if he's vindicated, it still ends in the same place, with death. From Job's perspective, God will win either way because he will, still bring him, he will still bring about the end of Job. And so why does it matter that Job is vindicated? Why does it matter that he's righteous? And I think it's fitting to pause here and take in Job's argument. Have you ever stopped to consider the futility and meaninglessness of life if there's no life after death? If the atheists are right, if the people who only believe, who the, if the naturalists are right, and there is nothing after death that we live in a purely natural and mechanistic world, then there is no meaning to our lives. You see, time and death are the great equalizers and the great erasers. Think back over the thousands of years of human civilization. How many people have lived and died anonymously? Even the great kings and queens of yesteryear are gone, forgotten, and lost to time. And if we take it even a step further, how many people will remember you in even 100 years? How many of you guys could name off the top of your head your ancestor from 100 years back? Okay, only a few of you. Okay, great, fantastic. What about 1,000 years ago? You know their names? No? Good, cool, fantastic. What about the chances, you know, the chances of your name being remembered are probably less than you winning the lottery. And if the atheists are right, none of it will matter when the universe winds down anyways. That's the end of the universe. Second law of thermodynamics means that we're we're ending, if you just sort of extrapolate time just endlessly, the universe will become a homogeneous soup of just nothing. We like the second law of thermodynamics. That's where we're headed. 
then what will it matter? It won't. And even if your name somehow manages to survive the annihilation of the human race and outlive the universe even, so what? You're going to be dead. And it won't matter to you anyways. It's quite the buzzkill, isn't it? Do you feel Job's despair? It's not just that God is unfair and that injustice is done against this blameless one, but it's that there is no hope for deliverance from the human condition that always ends in death. Even plants have hope for resurrection. The tree sprouts after getting cut down, but man, we die. And then what? That's his second issue. And then after a brief interlude, to hear from uh, Eliphaz again, foolishly and arrogantly speaking about God's unknowable majesty, which he, he and the other two friends apparently know very well, and talking about Job's wicked self-righteousness, we come to Job's third issue in chapters 16 and 17. Here in chapters 16 and 17, we really feel Job's lament that God has turned against him. Look with me at chapter 16, verses 7 through 11. Surely now God has worn me out. He has made desolate all my company, and he has shriveled me up, which is a witness against me, and my leanness has risen up against me. It testifies to my face. He has torn me in his wrath and hated me. He has gashed his teeth at me. My adversary sharpens his eye against me. Men have gaped at me at me with their mouth. They have struck me insolently on the cheek. They mass themselves together against me. God gives me up to the ungodly and casts me in the hands of the wicked. It's not just that God is unjust and that it's all futile and pointless, but now Job is really feeling the isolation and loss of relationship with God. God is not for him anymore. God has set himself against Job and left him alone in the hands of his enemies. And this has really left Job broken. For in chapter 17, verse 1 and 11 to 16, hear this. My spirit is broken. My days are extinct. The graveyard is ready for me. My days are past. My plans are broken off. And the desires of my heart, they make night into day. The light, they say, is near to the darkness. If I hope for Sheol as my house, if I make my bed in darkness, if I say to the pit, you are my father, and to the worm, my mother or my sister, where then is my hope? Who will see my hope? Will it go down to the bars of Sheol? Shall we descend together into the dust? And this one, this issue is probably the easiest to connect to. In the midst of great suffering, we all feel alone. Those not going through, some, through that same suffering simply don't understand. It feels as if there is no one in this pain with us, not even God. For Job, the enmity between God and Job, coupled with terrible friends, highlights the desolation of his life. It highlights that he has lost everything and everyone. God is against him. His friends are against him. His children and family are gone. His resources are gone. His reputation and status are gone. He is left with nothing and no one. This is really bleak and dark. What hope does Job have? What hope do we have in the face of these three issues? There is no hope for justice, no hope for meaning, and no hope for help. We are alone to suffer, powerless to overcome, because our adversary is the Almighty. 
pretty hard. And yet, there are small notes of hope. For all of Job's lamenting and railing against God, he hasn't thrown God away or forsaken him. He hasn't cursed God as his wife encouraged to do encouraged him to do. He keeps coming back to God to hoping for something, for anything. And this is real faith. This is Satan's fear that Job will stay committed to God no matter what. It's as C.S. Lewis puts it in the screw tape letters, our cause, that is Satan's and the demons, is never more in danger than when a human no longer is desiring but still intending to do our enemies will looks around upon a universe from which every trace of him that is God seems to have vanished and asks why he has been forsaken and yet still obeys. This is Job through and through. This changes the way that we understand Job's call for God to face him in the courtroom. Job isn't running away from God. Job isn't cursing him, but rather he's calling upon God to allow Job into his very presence and to make himself, that is God, known, to bring understanding. Remember we read in Psalm 73 about the injustice of the wicked prospering? Well, later on in the psalm, things take a turn in verses 16 and 17. But when I thought how to understand this, all these issues, all these problems. It seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God and then I discerned their end. It is there, in the presence of God, that we find our issues answered. But not in the way that Job expects, or really any of us expected. You see, Job's longing for justice, meaning, and purpose, and a, and a friend. He's longing for those things. And he finds all of those things not in deliverance from his circumstances, but in Jesus and the gospel. Jesus understands far better what it means to suffer unjustly than Job does. He was the only true, pure one. While Job holds fast to his innocence and purity that he is blameless, we know that he's still sinful. Jesus was not that. Jesus was pure through and through, and what does he get? Not the blessings that Job and his friends would have expected. He received beatings, scourgings, mocking, and the cross. Everything that he had was taken from him, even his relationship with the Lord. There, there right there, is injustice. It's the greatest injustice ever seen. But that injustice is for a purpose. There is justice in that injustice, that our sins are paid for and not just dismissed. There's a cost to our sin, and it is paid, just not by us. You see how part one of the gospel, the death of Christ, addresses the issue of unjust suffering. For those of you that haven't spent a lot of time with the youth group, I say to the youth group that the gospel consists of no less than three parts. His death, his resurrection, and our union to him. So part one is his death, where our sins are dealt with, where the injustice of this world is dealt with on the cross and swallowed up by him on that cross. But what about meaning and purpose? Issue number two, 
In Christ, we see the answer to Job's desire in chapters 14, in chapter 14, verses 15 to 17. You would call and I would answer you. You would, you would long for the work of your hands, meaning Job himself. For then you would number my steps. You would not keep watch over my sin. My transgression would be sealed up in a bag and you would cover over my iniquity. In the resurrection, Jesus brings purpose and meaning to life. Death is not the end. Eternal life is really the only way that our minuscule speck of life can mean anything. For then we endure. Life in the resurrection has swallowed up death and sin. Jesus, the only sinless one, could not be held by the grave for his righteousness did not deserve it. Christ's vindication, what he and Job long for, is seen at the resurrection. That is where injustice is swallowed up by grace and righteousness and justice. It is the ultimate answer to Job's suffering. And so part two of the gospel, the resurrection of Christ, gives us meaning and purpose and life. And then finally, the isolation from and enmity with God. This is answered in part three of the gospel, our union with him. What's interesting is that Job doesn't feel God's presence with him. If anything, God is against him. But what we know from chapters 1 and 2 is that God is Job's biggest cheerleader. God brags about Job's integrity and his faithfulness to Satan. He's the, God himself is the one who brings Job up. Remember, Satan has been looking, prowling around the earth, looking for true believers, and God is the one that says, hey, have you considered my servant Job? God is on Job's side from the very beginning, even before the beginning, before the foundations of this world. God loved Job. And God is always right. Even in the midst of the unspeakable suffering of Job, God is there preserving his life from the plans of Satan. God, God has never left. And so Job isn't really alone in his suffering, but is there at the very will of of God. He is there in the presence of God in the midst of his sufferings. He is there for God's glory and for his good, though he might not see it. And is yearning for a mediator, someone to advocate on his behalf that we heard about last week, looks to Jesus. Friends, in Christ we have been united to God. We have the presence of the third person of the Trinity living within our hearts, the Holy Spirit. We are never alone. We are never in isolation. We have never been forsaken. And even better, we can be sure that God is not against us but for us. We only need to look at the one to whom we are united. As we close this morning, I think that these chapters in Job resonate with us. We can feel Job's anguish and suffering. We can feel his isolation and despair. And yet we are reminded that the gospel never leaves us there but moves us ever more back to him. Job's words are instructive to us to keep coming back to God, to keep pursuing him in the midst of his seeming absence, for all we need to do is look at Jesus for our answers, to see the answers to injustice, futility, and to isolation. And it is precisely because of our security and understanding that of what we have in our union with Christ that enables us to step into injustice and suffering well. 
It enables us to step into hard things, knowing that vindication will come from God later, knowing that, in fact, we have already been vindicated in Christ. This is what Christians did for centuries as they served where others refused to. For instance, caring for the sick when the plague hit. At great risk to themselves, Christians were noted to have served in plague wards. When others should have taken up this task and abandoned their obligations, Christians took on a burden that was not theirs to take. They served those that they had no obligation to serve. This injustice had real consequences and costs. The fact that these folks were made to serve where others ought to have in their place, it had real consequences and costs. People died. People got sick. People lost loved ones because of this. But what a testimony of trust in the Lord amid hardship. They didn't talk about what is right. They didn't talk about their freedoms. They simply stepped in to embody Christ to those who desperately needed comfort and help. This is how Job helps us. It reminds us of what we have in Christ that we may step into injustice. For we know where justice lay. And for us in the 21st century, do we suffer well? Do we put our faith in God as Christ did on the cross? Do we trust in him as Job does, never forsaking but pursuing, lamenting but never cursing? When we step into hard things, when we suffer well by placing our everything in Christ, not by stiff upper lipping it, or, but by truly groaning and persevering, we bring glory to God by showing that he is worthy, even when it's hard, even when it's costly. He is good always, full stop, even when it's hard. In Christ, we know that the Lord will set all things right, that he will make us live with him forever, and that he already embraces us as his beloved. Friends, there is a world that is suffering amid the curse, amid sin. And we as Christians are the only ones with the answers. If you're a non-Christian here today, if you don't believe in Christ here today, know that there is no hope for you outside of Christ. There is no hope because you have all the same issues that Job does. And you don't have the answer. The answer is only found in Jesus. And he is here waiting for you. And he embraces you. Turn your life over to him. And so now, hear from the Lord's word in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 to 15. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, meaning those who have died, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him, meaning that we are with him, those who have fallen asleep. Suffering is coming. Hard times are inevitable. Not knowing what God is doing through our suffering is almost a certainty. And yet we shall not end up in despair with Job, seemingly without hope. For we have Jesus, who draws us up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and sets our feet upon the rock and making, making our steps secure. 
Praise be to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Let's pray. Father God, as we come before you, we have seen our condition. We have seen the issues that we all face, that this world just doesn't seem to work the way we expect it to, that we're all going to die. And that we often feel so, so very alone. And Lord, what hope is there in that? We cannot overcome. And so we sit with Job in despair. And yet you do not leave us there by the power of your son, by the graciousness of your son, by the power of your love. And so would you set our eyes upon Jesus? Would you set our eyes upon the one who is the answer to all of our suffering, to all of our need, to all of our hardships, to remind us that we are in fact not alone and that we have the Almighty on our side, that you are for us and not against us? Lord, what can man do to us if you are for us? Remind us of that great truth, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.